Uh, welcome to Managing Marketing. Today I'm chatting with the opinionated, passionate and entertaining, always entertaining, Professor Mark Ritson. Welcome, Mark. G'day, mate. How are you? I'm very well. But uh, more importantly, marketing. I mean, you're born in... Were you born in Lancaster? Or? No, no. I'm a Lake District boy. I was born in uh, in a town called Whitehaven, which is in West Cumbria on the edge of the Lake District. Okay. So how do you end up doing a Bachelor of Science in Marketing... <laughs> At Lancaster University? Well, I always wanted to do marketing. can't explain why. I, I knew that when I left school. Lancaster was very, still is, that was the first marketing department in the UK. Mm-hmm. And it also happened to be quite close by pommy terms, you know. Just down the road. 100 miles away, which is a long way when I, and you're a working class boy from Cumbria. But it, it, it was... It was the first marketing department set up in the UK. It had a very big marketing department. And I only realised later on, actually, because I got, you know, there were like 25 electives on my degree in 1989, which you just don't get even today in marketing no. departments. So I did that and I really enjoyed it. I went to work in London for NCR, Marketing Cash Machines. That wasn't that interesting. And then I, I got a scholarship to go to Wharton to do an MBA when I was 23. Uh and I, I got in and got the money and everything, but Wharton were quite correctly concerned that I was about six years too young to do an MBA. And so they put me on a waiting list for a year and said, look, you'll just have to wait and get a bit older. <laughs> You've got your funding. <laughs> a bit more experience. Yeah, this scholarship was like a really good scholarship that I'd won, and it was kind of like a very famous thing. And so um, they basically said, "Go, yeah, work a bit more and we'll squeeze you in when we can. It was decimating to me because I was ready to go to Philadelphia and everything. Mm. And then during the, during the pause, Lancaster came back and said, well, if you want to do postgraduate stuff, there's a PhD scholarship. So I did a PhD at 20, started at 23, finished at 27. And then Wharton wrote back to me and said, hey, you've still got two years of full funding. Would you like to do part of your PhD at Wharton, which at the time was the number one business school in the world? Mm-hmm. And so I went there and sort of did a postdoc, sort of finished my PhD there. Went on the job market in America, um, got a couple of good offers from very good schools, and at the age of 27, I found myself to be a professor of marketing at the University of Minnesota. <laughs> and so I had a very happy time. And the rest, as they say, is history. history. Yeah, yeah, there you go. There you go. So that's, I got into it much earlier than I thought. But one of the things that, and the reason I said Bachelor of Science, because I did a Bachelor of Science, mm. but mine was to do, you know, for medical research. Yeah. Marketing in science, because everyone talks about marketing being an art and a science, and so many people that come to marketing through a tertiary mm. course are often focused on commerce, business, not the science aspect of it. And I'm just wondering, do you distinguish a difference there? Or well, and, and again, it's here you begin to see how clever Lancaster was and is and how wise the people were that set it up. You actually got to choose. So you could have a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, or a BSc when you finished because their attitude was from Jeff Easton, the guy around the department, we think you could go, you could make either case. And so you get to pick, which was the only degree in the whole of the university that said that. And I think that's, and I, frankly, I only picked BSc because it sounds more impressive than BA. 
The reality which, is... Which, uh, so what's the joke? BA qualifies you to uh, fry, fry chips yeah. at McDonald's. That's basically <laughs> it. And I thought, fuck it, it's a choice. I love the BSC, you know. But I do believe, I mean, it's over, the science stuff's overstated and the creative stuff is overstated and the answer is somewhere between the two. Mm. And so, you know, I think that the talk of marketing as a science is naive. The vision of marketing science expounded by those like Professor Byron Sharp and so on is a childish view of science that isn't really suitably complex. It adapts, you know, the, the very bare principles of natural sciences to what is a social science. We're not the same. And if you study, I mean, one of the things I had to do as part of my PhD was actually do the philosophies of science for a year, mm -hmm. which is a painful thing to do. But I learned about Kuhnian paradigms. I learned about nomological research. I had to study all this stuff. The way we talk about science is a childish discussion. Natural sciences, the study of rocks and gravity, not the same as social sciences, the study of people. We're reflexive. It's not the same thing. Mm. And if you look at the debates in sociology and even the debates in marketing that no one here is aware of because they don't study the history of the discipline, we have had this debate before. Mm. It goes back almost 40 years to the Paradigm Wars, Holbrook, Hirschman, Shelby Hunt, names that nobody remembers in Australia, but because they're not properly educated in our discipline, we've already been through this once. And the answer is there are scientific elements that we can certainly borrow, but it is oversimplistic to try and create nomological laws of marketing. Mm. And I think that's, that's where we got to and where we should have stayed. And if I could finish, the one thing I love most, and I've forgotten now who wrote the paper, the singular best paper on this in the Journal of Marketing, and it's a paper that says... And the actual title is, is marketing, is marketing science, question mark, is science marketing? And the point they made is that the whole scientific approach in social sciences is about winning people over and convincing them of your point of view. Mm. And as Byron Sharp has done very well, convincing people that you are science and therefore they are wrong, which is a rhetorical, non-scientific argument, you know? Well, it, there, as you say, there are aspects of science that can inform marketing, but yeah. marketing itself can't be a pure science. Can't be. And, and there is no unifying theory of marketing, is there? If there was, we would have been getting towards it by now, right? We've been having to go a long time in America and now elsewhere. We don't have too many laws, right? Even yeah. Byron was at the law-like properties. Even the American professors that try and produce this have to keep having exceptions to the rule. So it's a little bit of a dreary challenge, I think, that people go on. We can be more rigorous, mm. we can be more empirical, we can be more evidence-bound, and that would be a great thing. But the idea that we're scientists is, is unfortunately a bit of a stretch, I would say. <laughs> Even though I've got a BSc. <laughs> Which uh, technically says you're a scientist. Yeah, well, I'll fucking love it. You know, if it's useful. I've got a PhD, I'm a doctor, I've got a PhD as well. But, I, you know, I, yeah, I, I think that we can stretch the bounds of that, I think. Yeah, uh, but uh, the other area that is the idea of complexity theory. Because I think complexity theory as an understanding of mm. marketing and the or the market is really interesting, you know, and and possibly um, behavioural economics yeah. has become the sort of a bit of a junction between the two because part of behavioural economics there's the economics but there's also the psychology yeah. and, and of human beings is a little bit of a bridge between the two. It's not pure. It's certainly no, not pretending right. to be science, but well, it is. Yeah, but they. Yeah, you're right. But it, it, I mean, I love that stuff, right? From uh, from Rory at Ogilvy and Richard Schott and those boys 
Mm-hmm. But it's trick photography for me. It's little flicks of counterintuitive knowledge. It's not that important. I mean, it's nice, mm-hmm. but showing you know, framing, you know, the classic framing effect where you've got a cheap option and an expensive option and a middle one in the middle of that, they're camera tricks. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And there's nothing wrong with camera tricks. They're very useful, but it's a very superficial two-inch deep discipline that does have, I think, some scientific uh, antecedents, perhaps, but again, I, I, I've seen that stuff before in America a long time ago, and it, 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 it doesn't go much more than an inch deep, in my opinion. It, you can't found a marketing strategy on it. What you can do is use it to... It's better than just tactics, I think. There's, it's tactics with a brain mm-hmm. attached to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it has been well expounded by that team. I had a big discussion with Rory um, over social media this week about some ridiculous cycling campaign, which looks really good because it's a guy who's the COO of McCannus, one of the big agencies, talking about what we really need from a pitching process. And it reads in the intro, like, oh, I'd like to read this, an agency guy talking about, you know, it's your stock and trade, yeah. what pitching should look like. And it's the biggest pile of wank I've ever read in my life. It includes things like, it's not, Lucci says this, it's nice when clients give us book tokens and stuff as part of the process because it shows their appreciation. And I'm like, what the fuck is that, right? Yeah. And Rory's point is, uh, but it's some kind of, you know, behavioral economics thing to give a gift. And I'm like, yeah, it's still fucking pathetic. But isn't that sort of one of the issues that, uh, you know, in modern marketing and modern business is that the whole discipline has been overcome by opinion. And, you know, I'll put my hand up because a lot of what I'm writing is opinion. But there's a lot of opinion out there. There's actually not a lot that's supported by evidence, is there? Yeah, but you do yourself a discredit. I think you are opinionated. But I think it's founded on... A, the firm and your experience, and you're not a dumb guy. And you, you see, I mean, you're in a nice position, not dissimilar from me in the sense that you do, you are a hummingbird that visits many flowers. Mm. And from that comes not empiricism, but a lot of experience and fact, you know. Mm. I mean, well, you see, I see trends. That's basically. Well, yeah, you yeah. see, I mean, I say to my clients, I'm Yoda, right? I always yeah. say, and I believe this, I'm not smarter than the average person in the room that I'm working with. It's just that I've worked for 10 multinationals that average 20 countries that each have 10 brands. Mm. And then, and I followed, I've worked for them for a long time in some cases. So I've seen plans get developed, executed, learn, change. You add that up, it comes to about two and a half thousand years, which makes me Yoda. It's not mm. intelligence. It's that I've helped develop, execute, review plans 2,000 times. And if you don't learn something from that, you're an idiot, right? And I think that's that's the that's the thing that's missing from a lot of our friends who are speculators and armchair experts is that they they're just talking shit, right? And it's I mean it happens all the time. At well, yeah. Sorry, I, no, actually, please, please. I, I I think it's actually much more sinister than that. Oh fuck! That, I thought it was being pretty bad, right? Well, right, no. In that, a lot of the pin, <laughs> opinion that's getting out there is actually being driven by sales. The, a Ooh, desire for yeah, sales. that's way worse than I thought. Right? Yeah. A lot of opinion mm-hmm. is actually driven by people mm-hmm. who are pushing an opinion as fact because they have something to sell out of it. And I see it on LinkedIn every day. You know, people saying to me, mm-hmm. oh, well, you know, you've got to be on this platform or you've got to build your business through this platform. And sure enough, when you, you dig down even in the most superficial manner, what have they got? They've got something that they're wanting to sell you in that particular platform. I mean, it's true. I mean, it happened so much you almost didn't notice it. I mean, when we were fighting the battles of, you know, social media clearly wasn't. And I see social media as a marketing tool very different from digital media. I mean, it's all semantics, but the idea of organic social media 
that about seven or eight years ago we started to think was going to change the world yeah. and everyone was going to have a relationship with their chips and everything. And, and when you started arguing with these people, I kept you know sensing that, you know, well, I just think it's a lot of bullshit. I don't make any money from it being or not being true. But everyone that was replying to me and ripping into me worked for a social media company. Mm. It was like, well, you know, you did get a sense of it at the time, yeah? I mean, I'd almost prefer your hypothesis to be true, but I think it, it, I have an even darker view, which is I just think a lot of people don't really know what they're talking about. I'd hope that there's a dark agenda which infers intelligence mm. in some cases. The reality is, I mean, my stock belief, and again, I might be guilty of selling subconsciously the viewpoint that works best for me as a, as a, as a professor or trainer, right? But I, um, I just think most people don't know that much about marketing, the work in marketing. Mm. I, I think the majority of them have never studied it. That doesn't help. Um, well, they don't have the basic understanding of... <laughs> they don't know anything. The, the no, just, I mean, you, yeah. can't, you can't go into the career and say, you know, I've formed some viewpoints about marketing and I'm going to... And we t- keep having the same conversations. And again, mm. it frustrates me because we've had these conversations before. Read some things. You know what I mean? Like I met some guy this year who's like desperate to do a course on marketing and to create a new model of marketing. And I'm like, look, my model's from like you know, 1986 from a bunch of professors who I think I really respect and they, they built it and stole it from someone else. You don't even know and you've never been taught marketing mm. or studied it. Why don't you start there before you start creating a model of it? You know, I think I've got 25 years to go before I'd even attempt that, you know? What, what makes you think you can turn up and move just, things around? Or, or even worse, not just move things around, just... Uh, imagine a whole new way of the world work and dim- and, dis- and-, <laughs> and dismiss all the shit that we that actually the worst one. Is, I think they're called flat earthers that, in well, science, and they're called something else in medicine. Worse, yeah. worse, worse, worse. <laughs> what they do is they they basically re like the content marketing world, right? Mm. Content marketing is fundamentally nothing new, okay. No. But what they've done is just, because they don't know anything about marketing originally, they've just reinvented names for everything that we already knew existed. So then they go, that, oh, that doesn't apply anymore. What we've got now is this. And this is the same as that. Well, uh, Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac is uh, one oh, of yeah, the content. earliest examples of uh, sure it is. content marketing. Sure it is, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there is a difference in that technology has made it possible for almost anyone to become a pub publisher or anyone to yeah. become a broadcaster or anyone yeah. to yeah the trouble is should they well <laughs> podcasts are a great example right i could fill my life morning and afternoon with podcast interviews right yeah. i'm only doing this one with you because you're a, you're a, you're a good dude and stuff right and, and and i would hope you'll pull a decent audience but there must be about nine thousand podcasts on marketing right but eight thousand of which have asked me to talk to them at some point and um, yeah, I mean, that's a great lesson. There's only room for two or three, mm-hmm. and the rest of them, you know, the rest of them will go on until people realise, well, there's not really any point in doing this. Just because we can have a newspaper or a social media following or a podcast doesn't mean we should. Sure, yeah. But then again, it's great that that allows new channels to emerge outside of the tradition. And give system. voice to different perspectives. But, you know, ultimately, if they have any value, then they'll succeed. And if they don't, they will just wither on the vine. They will. And I think that that's the, the hyper-competition means our media universe is more saturated, but it's also more... In- I mean, fuck, it's so interesting. I mean, the, the things that happen in the media world... I mean, I always talk about, you know, when we were young men, you would measure... 
the share of pie, right? Remember the yeah. old days, and you'd have, you know, how much has gone to newspaper and how much has gone to TV. Share of voice. Share of voice. But you know, you'd have, you know, your mm. media share, oh, yeah, and it was presented share. as a pie chart, right? Mm. Uh, and we stopped doing that for the simple reason that it's been moved. It's always in the line charts now because mm. it's moving. Like if you did a share of pie. For, for 25 years up until 2007, it didn't really, it was the same change. pie. Yeah. Now we have to show it as a line chart because <laughs> it's fucking moving up and, you know, digital's going up here, news is going down, TV's doing that. Well, the pie now comes in a thousand different sizes. Ah, uh, if you, if you, um, <laughs> or flavors. If you let it, you can break it up into all those horrible, um, you know, charts that say, here's the digital media universe. And it's like, why? Yeah. What is the point of that? I, if consumers and viewers aren't going, you know, ooh, I'm going to watch digital media today rather than whatever we think is non-digital. But do it for no the consumer. No one There isn't any non-digital media anyway. This is an uncomfortable point that we have to at some point accept, right? I start my classes with my students and I say, all right, digital and traditional. Give me the main forms of traditional. And they say, ah, oh, newspapers. I'm like, yeah, well, they're more digital now than traditional. Yeah. Radio. Oh, yeah, well, radio is now in the UK more digitally delivered than broadcast. Yeah, just passed the threshold last month. Outdoor, 65%. You know what I mean? So it's, for me, it's the, uh, it's the triumph of the moment where digital became everything and therefore became nothing. You know, mm. it's, a, it's a fascinating time. Well, it's interesting from our perspective because we still see a lot of marketing departments where there is a digital stream or a digital group. And it's almost like because so many marketing departments have ended up siloed, either because the organisation's siloed, or because they've aligned themselves by channel or product, right? um, and then they bolt on digital. And in actual fact, digital has become almost irrelevant because it has. almost everything they're doing in marketing communications has, digital. has digital. Well, and I'm seeing it firsthand without naming names. A number of big marketing departments with big digital departments are in the process, comfortably or not, of merging together mm. and what it means is half of these digital strategists will become the heads of strategy generally yeah. and half of them will lose their jobs that's great because one of the other areas i see is there's so many different strategists you mm -hmm. know the idea of having a marketing strategy and then there used to be a comm strategy or a channel strategy but now you've got a social media strategy and a digital strategy yeah. and, so, and of course all those strategies are not really strategies because it's like if you're a hammer then every problem's a nail. oh that's it and they're not even strategies in the sense that, I mean, I have a very fundamentalist belief, which is very simplistic, but seems to work really nicely, which is the minute we cross the threshold into communications, it's, it's a tactical realm. And you can use the word strategy, but the reality is the strategy has been done and we're into execution and thinking and using our brain. But the idea of a digital strategy or even for that matter, an advertising strategy mm. is to some degree a contradiction in terms it's really a plan, isn't it? Because it planning is. and strategies seem to be interchangeable in the comms area. It's something, it's something lower level. And, and the problem with that is we don't have any strategy in about 90% of Australian companies. So, mm. uh, no, I've, got, I've said that wrong. I do think, and I don't, I, I'll be honest, I don't work at the level where corporate strategy is set. I work at the level where marketing and brand strategy is set. I can tell you with absolute certainty that more than 90% of large Australian companies above $50 million of revenue all the way to the top have no actual marketing or brand strategy at all. Mm. It's and just I, a series of tactics. It's a series of tactics. It's a bunch of bullshit. It's people that don't know what they're doing. It's people that are distracted and there aren't plans in place. Talk to the agencies about what they get briefed on. Mm. Not just the quality of the brief, 
but the strategy which is fundamentally the skeleton of the brief. And they'll tell you nine times out of ten, there isn't a strategy there. We'll have to, literally, we have to create something because these guys don't actually have anything. They've got a bunch of tactical requests and they should be leaving to us. Yeah. But we'll now need to swim upstream and create. And the last person you want doing a strategy is an advertising agency, right? But it's better than nothing. Well, they're, what they're trying to do is bring sense to all the tactics. Well, and you, you understand why, post, yeah. Post-rationalised uh, structure or framework that actually makes all these tactics actually look cohesive. And they've got to... And I have sympathy for Australian agencies because they have had to do that. And one of the things you do with a client where they have finally got a strategy together is politely and firmly explain to the agency. And I've had these conversations. Listen, pal. You don't need to do your usual stuff. They know what the fuck they're doing this time. And it's not the agency's fault that they're trying to swim upstream. It's just that they're used to doing that. They have to say, right, they've got all that. Don't try and do all that stuff, workshopping stuff and all that crap. You're going you're gonna to walk into a wall. Just go downstream and do your job. This time, we've already got our shit together. And they're quite comfortable with that once you tell them that, but they don't expect it to be the case because they don't normally get it. Now, I just want to go back to your Yoda comment, mm. which I actually like. Um, and, you know, just to visualise. But do you think when you have that sort of level of experience and exposure to such a diverse array of businesses and circumstances, the fact that you've got such a solid grounding in the principles and, and understandings of marketing makes the insights faster or more insightful? Like when you look at a business, mm. it must be that having the framework, and it may be hard for you to answer because it's second nature. Well, no, I think it's a good question. It's interesting. I, I think the big problem that I have, and I think many clients have, is the more, exp I'll give you, let me give you an example to explain it first. So this will be my 25th, 25th year of teaching MBA students. And one of the things you learn about teaching is you never know how well or badly it's going because you're teaching the class. You're not by any means receiving it. So you really can't tell. From the front, it always seems to be going really well, right? Mm. And the, my point is I have to really, you know, hold myself. When I first started teaching in America, I was absolutely fucking terrible. Um, and I used to go out with the students in the evenings and say to them, you know, how can I be less shit? Like literally, right? And, and they would tell me and I would pay attention and improve. 25 years later and I've won teaching prizes and yada, yada, yada. It's much harder for me to look at the feedback and go, and my reaction now is, yeah, fuck you. You think I should do this. I'm a fucking famous professor. You, just, you know, what do you, what do you know? You're 28, you know? And that's my point. I think it's great to have experience, but then the danger of it is you start to get arrogant and you start to think you know what you're seeing. And the great humility of marketing is, is the ability to know you know nothing. You have to always start from that point. I mean, Feynman, the great um, physicist, said, you're the easiest person to fool is yourself. And I think that's the challenge of doing proper marketing diagnosis at the start, is not jumping to, oh, you know, Aussies do this all the time. Senior Aussie marketers go, ah, oh, look, mate, you know, I've come from Coca-Cola and I haven't really looked at the research too much, but I know what's going on. What we need to do is what we did at Coca-Cola, this, mm -hmm. this, and this. That's the thing that we have to be very, each brand is always literally different and each market is different. So the humility of marketing is, is hopefully, and look, we're all guilty of not doing this every time, is really getting back to zero and going, right, I know nothing. Hmm. I turn off all the lights. Now I can use research to make sense of this and I have to stay open. And we all get caught out. So market orientation for me is fundamentally the starting point. And market orientation is you're not the customer. Yep. And the fact you're being paid to work for this company 
means you now are completely blind. You're not a consumer by definition. Mm-hmm. You know, I work for a bank at the moment. Royal Commission, I have a particular take on it, and I'm pretty certain it's completely tainted by the fact that I work for a bank. Mm. And as long as I know that, I'll be all right. You know, I am not the consumer. Well, it's the bias, isn't it? I mean, that's one of the things I love about um, uh, science is that they are so self-obsessed uh, yes. in a way that you're looking for everything that you actually do to influence the outcome of the experiment. I mean, it, it's... But it's also the part that I loved about and attracted me to marketing is that taking that type of awareness into an area which is totally unpredictable. So yeah. I love I love chaotic, but you can't operate in chaos. You can only no. operate in complexity. But, but that's a great point too, right? So I see the world again as being market orientation starts my process. I mm-hmm. get tons of data then with the client. And, and you're right, there's a chaotic sense, particularly at the beginning with the data. But great analysis and insight is, is building a structure mm-hmm. organically from the data, which ends with segmentation. Segmentation is the end of the diagnosis point because it produces order out of that chaos. Mm-hmm. And, and everyone, again, I've, you know, no one understands segmentation. It's got nothing to do with the company. You know, if, if I'm working for Woolworths, I should build exactly the same segmentation that Coles do. There's absolutely mm. nothing about the market. Market segmentation is about the market. Yeah. It's the end of the understanding. You know what I mean? And that's the point where the yeah. chaos has been made sensible. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because what you're describing there is really the starting point of the scientific method. And I'm sure if you did uh, the yeah. philosophy of science, observe, yeah. make a hypothesis based on the observation, yeah. then find ways of testing it. The trouble is when you come to experimentation, very hard to have a null set when... Human beings are human beings. You can't have a separate market over here that you don't influence. And to be fair, if you ever look at how these scientists do it, I mean, I used to do a lot of this sort of this work in America when we were publishing a lot of papers. That's how they say they do it, and they don't. They already have the data and the hypothesis. They mm. don't play it. You know what I mean? It's dodgy. Yeah. In most science, is not science. It's, it's, you know, Max Planck is the guy to read on this. The stuff on nutrition is a brilliant story to be written or a film to be made mm. about how an American, I forget his name, head of nutrition basically pushed the idea that low fat, high sugar was, was mm. the way to lose weight. And there was an English guy who died penilessly who argued that that was not true. And actually, high fat food, you know, counterintuitively, didn't necessarily make you fat or unhealthy. And he lost out because these scientists using apparently the scientific method in America were all trained by each other. They're all part of a little happy group. Mm. And Max Planck makes the point that it's only when these guys literally die that you have a chance to replace them 35, 40 years later in schools of nutrition with an alternative point of view. The scientific method is by and large a lot of wank, right? The rationality of it is entirely post hoc even in the natural sciences, never mind in the sciences we work in today. You know what I mean? You look mm-hmm. at how things have been developed in science. They're by and large, not always, but by and large, very dodgily developed. You know what I mean? People have an inherent bias. Well, certainly the peer review component <gasps> is, is what you're talking about. Yeah, when, when, when everyone gets on board, take Copernicus. You know, he, uh, he was the one that told us that the sun uh, didn't revolve around the earth, that the earth actually revolved around the sun. But because it wasn't the uh, the prevailing uh, belief at the time, uh, no one paid any attention to him. And we do get there eventually, but not in this smooth... You know, I've been through the... When I was a younger professor getting work published, you know, 
that some of my best reviews for very big journals in America resulted in a rejection when there was no real explanation. It was just like... You're not fitting in with the uh, They just said, oh, look, it's a great paper, very interesting, not going to publish that. Mm. I mean, you got a real sense of it. You know, there was we got close with... God, I don't remember the name. QJE, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, which is the God's Journal of Economics, and I was doing work on pricing. It's maybe the best set of reviews I've ever had. And I said to my co-author, Mark Bergen, holy shit, these guys love it. And he went, no, they've rejected the paper. <laughs> and, and it was like, why? And it's like, you know, we got the paper we did write was cited in, in the Nobel in, in the Nobel Prize acceptance speech that was published in a B journal, but it it, it never made it, and it was like, it was just clear. Ah, uh, yes, because people are people, aren't they? Human Unfor- beings will always be flawed. Unfortunately, well, and their flaws are interesting, right? Right. Yeah. The um the you mentioned the MBA students because you're mainly um, lecturing in marketing to MBA and EMBA at mm-hmm. uh, Melbourne Business That's School, right. but you're also running this uh, mini MBA, which I've heard a lot of positive things about. Well, that's good. Thanks for mentioning it. No, no. Well, the reason I ask is that I, um, first of all, from a personal perspective, I think that uh, you know I, I'm fascinated because I love the idea of giving people at least a framework of marketing that they yeah. can then apply. That's why we started it. Yeah. But what what are you seeing from that? Because it must be amazing seeing people have worked in industry, worked in marketing, worked in media, yeah. coming through that course. Because how long does it run for? How many well, weeks it, do you have? It's a total 12 weeks. So it's just the, it's the course I've taught at London Business School, at MIT. Um, I never taught it at Melbourne because I've always taught the brand elective. And it's just such a great course with such a good structure. And it's not my course. It's the course that any good, very good marketing professor would teach at a world-class school. You know what I mean? It's, it's, that's, the, uh, that's, the, that's the format. And what I've seen is quite, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I did it partly because I think the textbooks of today are hopeless. I think, as we've already said, most marketers don't have uh, a good marketing knowledge. And... Frankly, I started having babies with my wife and I couldn't keep traveling overseas. And I thought this is a good way <laughs> to create a revenue stream where I don't have to you know, fly to America and so forth. All of that's worked out. It's a very successful program in terms of we have a net promoter score right now. I just checked this morning, plus 78. We've had three. That's amazing. It really is amazing. We've Especially had, the bank you're working for would be happy with anything in the positive. They really would. They really would. Anyone would, anyone would take that score. And um, so we, we're very happy with that. We've had about 3,500 marketers have gone through it so far. Um, we're picking up more and more through advocacy. And... What's really interesting is the intimacy of the learning online means it's better than being taught in a classroom. That's the bit I wasn't anticipating. So because you you basically watch it all on apps and then you do an exam and stuff, but it's me, but on green screen and things, the relationship you develop with the student and the impact on them is quite clearly now and upsettingly almost superior to the one you have with them on the classroom. They do it over 12 weeks, mm-hmm. little bite-sized things. It's on their screen at their time on the way home and so on. And rather than pulling them into an amphitheater as we would in the 15th century and shouting at them for six days, it is apparent that this is a superior approach. Not just in terms of convenience on both sides, but in terms of learning and impact. Hmm. That's the bit that surprised me. And so we will move, you know, I'm, I'm selling it to a big provider in America. We will, we will keep moving it forward. We'll bring out a brand version next year. It's incredibly lucrative, I'll be honest with you, but it's having this, you know, I mean, this is real data, right? Wait for this. 
94% of the people that have done the course so far said it made them a more effective marketer immediately. Mm. It's a stunning statistic. And we're, we're pulling quite very senior people into the course. So it's working. And, and, I think, and it's not some kind of amazing syllabus that I've invented myself. I mean, it's my material, but it's based upon the, mar- the proper marketing mm. process. And so, yeah, I see it. Wait for this. If we played our cards right, I see it as a replacement for Kotler and the textbooks of old. That's the game I'd like to play. I don't think we'll get there. But we'll have a red hot go at it, and um, I think getting into America, which is the home of marketing, where they've all disappeared from view, it, it is. I think we're on the verge of something quite exciting. So, yeah, it's been an amazing run, and and you know it's hard not to look at the classroom approach and worry for its long term tenability when this thing starts. To, when I've seen what this can do, when yeah. it's done. and you know the the typical online course is is terrible, right? It's an Al Qaeda style video of a guy. You know what I mean? With a bad microphone, with books behind him, you know. But as a marketer, I mean, you are now delivering the content Mm. that you deliver in a lecture theatre into a format where the audience, your customers, are actually choosing the time and place and mindset. Yeah. So that, you know, how many times have you been standing in an auditorium and you know, you might pick out three or four faces that are completely engaged because... It's human nature to always go for the faces that are clearly hanging off your every word. But then there's going to be 30 or 40 other people that are sort of sitting there going, I wonder what's on for lunch in the cafe. Oh, no, or... you're doing me a disservice now, Dan. I'll steady on that. So no, I'm... you mean they're all total, totally engaged. I, if I can't do that, something wrong with me, right? My average teaching score on a five-point scale is 4.9 over 25 years. Never been beaten by anyone on the yeah, program. But he, yeah, and no, okay, you're at the top of your game. But, but compared it's still to your NPS score, <laughs> I think just the format means that people right. are completely in the zone to take it on because they wouldn't do it otherwise. Unfortunately, you're right. So unfortunately, you, you, can, you can win that attention in an amphitheatre with 100 people, but yeah. by Christ, it's hard work. Yeah. And second, you're absolutely right. At the end of the day, I mean, I can only do it in hour-long chunks and then you have to do something else with them right. because they just, you know, it's an eight-hour day. Yeah. So yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I, and I think the other part to it is the intimacy that this model seems to engender is a genuine surprise. There's something in the learning method of me being on their screen rather than them being in my lecture theatre, which is, be, and because online learning has been done so badly so far, and I certainly wasn't a fan of it, it's largely failed. Well, but, yeah, you've taken someone that has perfected or in, you know, at the top of your game doing it live and then you put that content and the performance and the and the content's 20 years old in the nicest possible way so we've had 20 years of prep and we then went in and we did spend a lot of money on it I mean we filmed it in a green screen studio in Melbourne I'm walking around places you know what I mean it's not you know but I think that's it they've tried to replicate it the company that I'm working with in London and they've struggled not because the people aren't good but you've had a 20 year run to get it ready so yeah there's a model there that is interesting and I think is is not just personally and financially and in terms of I meet people all the time now who I met someone on the ferry yesterday who's done the course so they feel like they know me in, I mean I'd take my clothes off at one point literally <laughs> so I mean they feel like they know me intimately and I've obviously never met them so yeah, it's, yeah that's quite weird it's quite weird man yeah. it's quite weird because they clearly I mean quite correctly think they know me I, I have that a, a to a lesser extent obviously no, but, you know, people meet, meet you and they talk to you as if you're a close personal friend and you're going have we met 
and they go, no, but I've seen all your videos and watched your pod, listened yeah. to your podcast, and you go, great, glad you like it. It's nice to get that feedback. Well, it's, it's yeah, it, it, it means you're doing the right thing, right? I also want to pick up on the fact that so many people, senior marketers, all sorts mm. of people are coming to you and saying it's fundamentally made them a better marketer. Because it's interesting. Yeah. There are marketers that have gone through and done their base degree. Yeah. There are those that have come to marketing like myself and have other, you know, I, I know marketers that are lawyers and metallurgists and all sorts of yeah. things. Do you think part of this is, you know, you've had 20 years to refine it, you are really giving people an absolute foundation that they can take all their experiences and everything they've known and suddenly, almost like Lego bricks, work out which no, bits fit onto the foundation and which bits they should toss, toss because it, it doesn't make sense. There's three things going on. If you, I mean, we, we, we were quite, I must say, for once we got it pretty right. I did a lot, we practiced what we preached. So I did a lot of segmentation work before I developed the content mm-hmm. and our goal was to target really two distinct segments. Digital marketers who have lots of digital but no marketing, and we wanted to say, come on, it's not, you know, keep your digital tactile skills, but come and be a proper marketer. That's worked very well. And senior marketers, more to your point, who either did a marketing degree so long ago they can't remember it, or it wasn't very good, or have never had a marketing training, which is quite common, but have worked successfully in the industry for a long time and have worries about confidence and yeah. being found out and imposter syndrome and everything else. And I think about three things happened to your point. If you talk to the senior guys who've done the course, and we did pull even more senior than we expected, and we continue to do so, you're absolutely right. One of the one of the things they get is suddenly that joins the dot, like a map. You suddenly link. I, I'm 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 live in Sydney for a while now, but I'm learning how Northern Beaches fits in with Eastern. You know, it suddenly yeah. locks in together. That certainly, and they go, oh, "Fuck, I get it." Segmentation does that, and then targeting does that. There's another group who learn. I've been calling it this because I've kind of worked it out for myself, but actually he's telling me it's called that and there's a Harvard reading on it. Right. Got it. I'm right, and now I know what the fuck it's properly called. Mm -hmm. But I must say, there's also a third area, which is I had no idea about that at all. Right. And I would say, even with a senior guy, there's approximately a third of each going on. I mean, the structure of the course is literally the story of how to do a marketing plan Mm -hmm. and how one bit fits into another. So your Lego analogy is good. But there's also a lot of stuff that people just either have never learned or have forgotten that is really important stuff. So yeah, they're, they're, that's why it's so in, you know that's why it's so important to me because it frankly isn't an innovative course. It's I think it's taught innovatively and interestingly. But what it is is marketing, which mm. so many marketers don't have. So uh, if you don't mind, um, send me through the link so we can include it with the uh, podcast, okay? Because I think, look, because I think anything that's going to improve the quality of marketing thinking has to be good for the industry. So, yeah, I'm with you, and I'm with you. Thanks, mate. And and, yeah, I genuinely think, other than making a a shed load of money and, and having lots of people do the course, we have this chance to have something that will help fix a problem that is getting increasingly worse. Mm. And that isn't my mission in life, but my, it's attractive, mind you. I grew up on Kotler, which is the classic mm-hmm. textbook. I, I recently, it's about 600 bucks now. 600 on, bucks, on. yeah, Prentice Hall. <laughs> and I recently reread it, and it's now written partly by Kotler, who's in semi-retirement, and also by Kevin Keller, who sort mm-hmm. of replaced him. 
And I, have to, I love both of those men very well. I, I think they're fantastic thinkers and scholars, and we owe so much to them. Their book is a pile of shit, right? It's just been added to and amended, like a house that's been yeah. expanded and expanded. It is unreadable. Too many extensions. <laughs> Too many. And even if it was still an era of books, which, you know, asking yeah. a 28-year-old marketer to read a fucking giant 800-page textbook, yeah. that is not going to be our source of knowledge. So I really want mini-MBA in my own little ambitious way. <laughs> it's not going to happen, but I'm going to say no, it. No, but, yeah. We have to have dreams, right? I want it to get to America. America's the home of marketing. Yeah. And my, got my, my activities with a large, you know, digital player over there is really aimed at, I want, if Americans learn marketing this way, I mean, I learn it from Americans, that would be a complete circle for me. I would retire a happy man in 10 years' time. You know? Well, you've changed the world, haven't you? I could or have changed least, the world, Darren. Or at yeah. least changed the marketing world. I'll have a go. I haven't done anything <laughs> yet. I mean, yeah, that would be a great thing to aim for. Not that it's... I don't think... I'm not up myself. I don't think it's going to happen, but I'll have, a, I'll have a go. Damn good. A damn good shot. Mm. Mark, thanks very much. We've run out of time. Uh, one, one final question. Yeah. Um, where is the best place for anyone to start on their marketing career? Thank you.